0: Hi, I'm Rob Lincoln, founder of PayDoc. Welcome to our payments podcast, where we seek to help merchants win with insights in how to succeed in payments, security, and identity. This podcast is designed for anyone wanting to benefit from global leaders without all the effort of attending a conference or yet another Zoom event. Today, we're chatting with Renee Pelleguero, one of the most experienced and recognized payments leaders on the West Coast in the U.S., previous roles included the Director of Global Payments at Amazon and key roles at PayPal, GE, and more recently at RPGC working with national brands across the US. Today we're unpacking some of the big themes in payments, what's broken, what's working, and where the future is taking us, and a question about ethics in payments, something we know you'll find interesting. We trust you enjoy our chat with Renee. Renee? absolute pleasure to be talking with you. We're going to take this easy. We'll see where it takes us. I think it's a real privilege to be talking to you. And last time we connected, I felt like I learned a lot in that 45 minutes I think we chatted. So today is a pleasure for me. By way of context, Renee, you've been in the industry 20 years. You're the President Managing Director at Retail Payments and Global Consulting Group, previously Director of Industry Relations and Strategy at PayPal, then the Director of Global Payments at Amazon, your name is on at least that I could find two patents. We might touch on that later and you can tell me if there's more hiding out there. But I thought in terms of kicking off some of these podcasts we want to do, there was no one better we could start with. And if there was anyone out there who had a sense of where the payments industry was going, it would be you. So thank you for spending a bit of time with me today. Oh, thank you for having me over and having a chat. I look forward to it. Right. Well, hopefully I don't ask any too curly questions. I, I probably... I won't have, won't have more knowledge than you on any particular domain, but I'm curious to know what got you started into the payments sector. I'll quote one of our previous employees, and they said, well, I didn't find the payments life the payments life found me. And I don't know what your experience of going into payments was. I assume it didn't run in the family, but, but why payments? And why do you care? Because obviously you built such a big career in it.
1: No, it's, I also kind of ended up backing into the industry, as it were. My very first job happened to be at a bank. So from day one, I was in the whole financial services industry, but it's not the kind of job that I really wanted because working for banks is not necessarily my cup of tea. On the other hand, I did enjoy and learn from financial institutions the discipline of managing and the financial accuracy, which I found tremendously intellectually challenging as to how to reconcile and how to bring all of those gazillion different types of transactions and be able to reconcile them. But it was not until I joined a company by the name of Tandem Computers. They used to be very, very big, and they are still very big, although all of that equipment, the brands, and all of that is now owned by Hewlett Packard. But with Tandem, I was able to look at the technology behind payments, and I was fascinated by the fact that an authorization request could go from somewhere in Italy, all the way across the world, through San Francisco, California, where Visa had its networks, its big switch, and then send the transaction all the way back to Baltimore for approval and have the transaction go back all the way to Italy in less than five seconds. And that was absolutely fascinating. What does it take to actually do that? And later on, I became tremendously involved in the function of payments. What are the different aspects of payments when I did some work with GE Capital doing consumer financing on a global basis. But it was not until I joined Amazon in 1999 that I said, okay, this is it, I'm not going anywhere. Because at Amazon, I then learned about the economics of the business and realized how important payments are to almost every facet of the business. Payments impacts the customer experience. Payments impacts the financial aspects of things. Payments impacts the reputation of the company. And so to be able to have that broad perspective as to how a business and a retailer in particular,ly operates and the contribution of payments made me say, this is a place where I can contribute. So that's Pretty much, I mean, I could go on for hours just talking about my different adventures in the
0: payments space, but let's just leave it there. I know Simon Sinek, who we all respect, talks a lot about the why, and you talk about how important it is. If you had to say what your why is, why do you care, I think is one of the most important questions for anyone when we wake up and do our jobs. It is important. It involves almost every aspect of the business, but why not choose payments as opposed to anything else? Well, you know, sometimes
1: my colleagues and I have conversations about the fact as to why are we doing what we're doing? And the justification, at least that I give myself, and I'll speak only for myself, is that people who trade amongst each other don't fight with each other. People who trade with each other tend to become friends. People who trade with each other tend to grow together. And therefore, to be able to trade, you need to be able to make a payment because if you think about trading is little more than an exchange of value yeah and yeah. it has evolved over time from the barter days to the very complex systems that we have today that make things look very easy with a great deal of complexity but the sociological justification if you want to call it that is that by facilitating and helping make payments happen on a global basis we are facilitating trade and we are facilitating and helping people be more com with each
0: other. That's great. And I love that phrase, exchange of value. We might have to go back to that because uh, I think that taps into some some other themes of yours later. But you've worked with some of the biggest names you all know, FedEx, Microsoft, T-Mobile. I was really curious to understand what are some of the themes that you've noticed? Have there been repetitive themes when working for them? Are there common problems? This might tap into the next few questions that we want to look at about commoditization and fragmentation. But I thought we could lay a bit of a foundation and say, is this, what sort of themes have you seen in these large enterprises over the years, or is it a different problem every day? No,
1: there are consistency amongst a number of the problems. One of the things that we're seeing at the business level, and I'll try to tackle it in those same frameworks, technical, business, and economical as well. At the business level, Organizations, especially the larger ones, are becoming more aware of the fact that their payments platform, whatever that may be, is becoming an asset or should become an asset for their operations. It can be a definitive contributor to the bottom line. From a technology perspective, we're finding environments that are becoming more and more complex, and we are finding many people doing the same thing, sometimes in the same organization when technical resources, engineering resources are tremendously valuable, they are repeating the same functionality or in some cases managing payments platforms when their job really should be to develop new ideas. And finally, from the economic perspective, the other trend is, of course, is the cost of payments, primarily here in the United States, where we do not have, or we have little regulation that actually manages that. So the question becomes, what should the cost of a payment be, and who should be paying that?
0: Yeah, you said something there that you mentioned on our earlier conversation, which I actually have held on to. I think it was a great phrase, and you talked about the payment's journey with payments ultimately becoming an asset. And there were a couple of stages before that. I can't remember exactly the phrasing you used, but I I thought it was really seminal.
1: Yeah, we have a little scale that we use and we ask our clients to say, where are you in that journey? And usually payments is a burden. We have to do payments. It's kind of like we don't even want to know about it. We might be a small company, a startup, and we just want to create our little product and then we have to sell it, but we don't want to have to deal with much of it. The next is payments becomes a necessity. Then people begin to realize, hey, I'm a small startup. I'm trying to get my product out the door, but now I need funds to come in to be able to meet payroll. The third one is payments as a utility. It's kind of like the light, the electricity or the phone service. Nobody manages, nobody cares very much until it breaks. And then you realize how important it is to your business. That's when people then become aware that, hey, this payments platform could really become an asset. And they begin to put the necessary effort and investment into it so that the platform can contribute to the bottom line, can enhance the customer experience, can help the company grow as well. And you can even go to a next stage where you develop or the merchant develops such a strong knowledge of the payments platform, competencies that can then be used to turn that payment platform into a revenue generator. For example, there are situations of large companies that have to deal with a number of suppliers, and they are now processing payments for their suppliers, franchisees. Imagine, for example, in the online travel space, all of those small mom and pop, they have their own payment relationship, sometimes not in under very advantageous terms. The online travel agency could actually provide those kinds of services to their partners, in that case, at a more favorable term. So and now, the payments platform becomes, instead of being a cost item, now it generates revenue.
0: That's brilliant. And I think you and I both serve a similar cohort in terms of the medium and up, really, the larger organizations. What would you say, I'm really curious, you know, your lens on the industry, are we talking like 50% of large organizations are at that asset level yet, or what's the spread? What's the mix? If I was to give you
1: a number, it would be more more empirical than actual scientific. In our empirical research, by just talking to different clients, tells us that I will say that maybe... of large organizations actually think in that fashion. So there's a
0: lot of value trapped there. There is indeed a
1: lot of value trapped. And there are many organizations who flat out say, we're not a payments company and don't want to touch that. We have situations where we have gone into clients where we have made the recommendation. Hey, this thing you have here is good. You should leverage it. You should hire people to actually perform the job rather than using half a person here, half a person there. And the answer comes back as, No, we're not going to do that.
0: (laughs) Well, that's funny, because the world we come from, I think, every company is a fintech company. It doesn't matter if you're selling ice creams or core banking. (laughs) Yeah, it is interesting.
1: I hadn't thought about it that
0: way. That's pretty cool contrast. Yeah, that's great. Well, look, there's a few trends I wanted to chat about, which is, I guess, choice to quote Bono's famous phrase, in New York, freedom looks like too much choice. And we're seeing so much movement in the fintech space, in the payment space, in the rate tech space, in fraud, in AML. The whole place is sort of exploding. You know, every time we talk about like what's happening in the industry, what we're trying to do at PayDoc, everything else, people say, oh, it's so crowded. How do we navigate there's a few trends that I want to talk to you about. One is commoditization, the other one is fragmentation, and then what do you see falling out of that? Do you want to just touch on your perspectives on what's being commoditized and where is it breaking up? Sure. What is commoditized right now is the acquiring
1: function. If you think in terms of car payments, acquirers are becoming more and more squeezed. Almost to the point that if you look at the United States marketplace, for example, there is acquirers buying other acquirers so that today, if you're a large organization looking for a equally sizable, not a small mom and pop type of operation, you're down to four or five acquirers. Whereas before, there used to be a good dozen or so alternatives. So that function is being commoditized. Similarly, or along the same lines, the cost of transaction processing on the acquiring side is getting commoditized. There are some companies out there that are saying, pretty soon I'm gonna to have to pay you, merchant, to give me a transaction. Because I think that the value, and this brings us into what will be the effect of consolidation, is that the value is going to become not about processing the payment, but the information and the data that goes along with the payment. And so that's kind of one of the byproducts of that. Now, the fragmentation, if such a thing is happening, seems to be occurring at the front end because I don't believe that there is ever too much choice. The frustration comes from the fact that I'm linked into this processor and I don't know how to move on or how to easily connect to all of these different alternatives that come along without having to reinvent and re-architect my world. That's where the frustration comes along. There are many ideas, many thoughts, and again, This goes back to having a synchronization of people that know and understand payments are a merchant, that are able to recognize the value that these new players provide, which in many cases is not available there. But if such staff existed with that kind of knowledge, the first thing that they all begin to think about is, how can I connect? How can I create an architecture that will allow me connection to all of those platforms and to move things around in a manner in which I do not have to be spending hundreds of many years of engineering time doing that. So those are kind of where we see this current state of affairs.
0: Do you feel that the large merchants are then at sort of this crossroads then of, do we build this kind of technology or do we buy it? Or they're in this decision-making flux right now because they see the tidal wave of fragmentation at the front, commoditization at the back. And unsure how to really safely connect because the, I guess, the corporate knowledge or the industry knowledge that's required to be maintained to sustain an efficient ecosystem just is very difficult to maintain if you're not a top tier operator.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because some of the newer, what I call the new economy companies, the Facebooks, the Googles and the like, are a little bit more attuned that and are willing to make more investment in that area as compared to the old economy companies. But every so often, we do run into an old economy company, a telephone carrier, who decided to build its own switch that allows them to support two acquirers and to be able to, regardless of whether it is a transaction that initiated at the store or whether it is a recurring billing transaction, whereas before those transactions went via two different acquirers, now they are able to send them to whichever acquirer they send, and that allows them to minimize outages, allows them to minimize cost because they get the vendors to actually compete for good transaction pricing, and it also allows them to monitor their overall processing in a much better fashion. And so they built it themselves because their needs were specific. They were very domestic. It's a domestic U.S. carrier. And they decided to build it, and they had the technological resources. On the other hand, we've also seen global companies where almost every country becomes its own separate silo to interface into a particular aggregator to go into a particular country because there was no conceptual design from the beginning as to how all of these methods of payments were going to be integrated over time. And they always go through this whole build versus buy decision as well. And the challenge in that is trying to figure out how by buying, I can actually make my cost structure a little better. Because once again, when you do not treat your payments as an asset, You're not managing the overall cost that it takes to operate and to implement new methods of payment. It's all sunk costs, cost of doing business. Nobody tracks... How many engineering hours you have to just keep the lights on? Nobody keeps track as to how much is lost in terms of uh, upsetting consumers because they get declined by the issuer and they go somewhere else. Nobody tracks how much fraud and chargebacks
0: is it being. It's all cost of doing business. You've got. I was just going to quickly say, and then you've got risk of data breaches amongst all that spaghetti that you Indeed. you won't find out about till six months later, and a big fine from the ICO or, or someone like that. Oh, indeed, indeed. And if marketing
1: comes along and they decide that they want to go into a country and your platform cannot easily support it, and you have to delay launch there for a year, what is the opportunity cost associated with that? Contrasted against that, of course, is the cost of buying a platform that can do all of the things that I just talked about. And that comes with a transaction fee. Now that is a hard cost. Now you're paying something. And they track that
0: very well. (laughs) Yeah, look, we've seen that again and again. And I think all of this kind of funnels down to the white paper you wrote called Payments Orchestration Layer, Necessary Functionality in the Payment Stack. Obviously, that, that's a place where we play as well. But I'm curious to know what prompted you to write it. I mean, I feel like payments orchestration is this concept that's been around for a very long time. More recently, it's got a name. You've really verbalized it as well. And I'm really sort of interested to understand what necessitated that piece from you and why was it important to put it out? Well, probably the germ of all of that was in my early
1: days working uh, in the technology side of the house and working with a lot of ATM and point-of-sale switches that fundamentally routed transactions left and right based on different criteria, usually what kind of card it is. What orchestration to me is all about is enhancing that capability and include all of the things that people are beginning to demand today. We are seeing merchants, as I indicated earlier, having multiple acquirer relationships so that they can retry decline transactions. There are surveys that say that if there is a 26% probability that if you decline, you the merchant decline a customer for no valid reason, it's because the issuer sent you a do not honor decline code, there is a 26% probability that that customer is going to go somewhere else and you'll never see him again. And so those are really quantifiable risks associated with providing superior service. And several merchants who have tried to to figure out how to solve the problem, they retry the transaction, sometimes through the same acquirer, fiddling a little bit with the data, not a very cool thing, to be honest, but it's still reasonable. Or they will retry through a separate acquiring relationship. And in a significant number of cases, anywhere depending on the industry, from 15% to 30% of all of those declines, you might be able to save them through an alternative retry strategy. And that can easily turn into somewhere like 1% to 2% bottom line upside. Adyen actually has a good paper on that particular space. And we also have experiences related to us from certain merchants who have tried some of these same tactics and they also report
0: similar things. What are you saying is that depending on the merchant, obviously, and other factors, larger merchants or even smaller ones can see 1% to 2% profit increase just by having like a multi acquire orchestration retry strategy. And that's, again, that's one of those stats that probably doesn't get tracked, but should. But it's not easy to benchmark if you're on a single gateway strategy, single acquirer strategy. Correct. But that's a big number to throw out there. Absolutely. When you combine it with the other metrics that you were mentioning.
1: Yeah. And if you start thinking about your cost of outages, there are some very interesting surveys that indicate how much money, and this again, is something that very few merchants actually track. When you're down, in the physical space, you can actually run the old paper knuckles or do a manual transaction, right? But in the e-commerce space, for example, if you are down, you cannot accept payments and you cannot really move forward with the transaction systems. We're not designed to work in that fashion. So you could be losing tens of thousands to millions of dollars, depending on the length of the outage. The other thing that, again, doesn't get track is how many engineering hours do you think have been spent over the last few years by engineers just trying to keep in compliance with new visa mastercard requirements for example moving from dollar one authorization to the account verification or dollar zero and figuring out which transaction needs to go which way or the new one which i love is doing an authorization for a refund or a credit which. By the way, it doesn't seem to be working right now. But here we have thousands of engineers across thousands of merchants around the world developing the same bloody code. And so I think that that need to address that waste is probably what led us initially to start thinking about orchestration, which in turn also led us, hey, hang on a second. We can add a few more bits and pieces into this thing that adds more value. So to us, orchestration right now means the capability to create a platform that will improve your routing, will allow you to implement retry strategies, will optimize routing for lowest cost or better acceptance, and will also allow you to create a platform that can be driven and managed not by engineers, but by payment professionals that can actually define, using rules-based systems, what will be the best routing opportunity. And eventually, going back to my original banking days, that can actually is a platform that can track and account for itself financially by maintaining
0: real-time ledgers. That's great. This is one of the best definitions of orchestration. I've heard it in a long time, and my company, not yours. <laughs> <laughs> I'll quote you on that. But one thing I, I was sort of reading between the lines of what you were saying there, I think there's one thing for, you know, any merchant listening to this is maybe a lot of us are tracking the wrong numbers. And there's other numbers we should be tracking to really quantify the whole cost of payments. Yeah.
1: We know a good example, sorry to interrupt you there, but we had a good friend of mine, colleague of mine at PayPal, and he came to run a big, large software company, payments operations, where they had integrated the entire global payments function. And one of the first things that he was able to do is to find a financial analyst and began to collect and track a lot of those numbers. And using that information, he was actually able to go up the ladder to his bosses and bosses' bosses and say, this is how much we would lose every minute if we're not up. This is how much we will gain in revenue in those kinds of things. And that company made the necessary investment. And right now, they have one of what I consider uh, a state-of-the-art payments management environments. And they developed their own kind of orchestration layer, as it were. And it was
0: a numbers, data-led discussion.
1: Yeah, it was a data-driven decision-making because the proper numbers were being tracked.
0: That's compelling. I'd love to. Maybe you and I should just come up with a list of here's what you should be tracking and publish out there and say, here's your lens to assess yeah. the health of your payment. You know?
1: As a matter of fact, Daniel and I are
0: actually working on that even as we speak. All right. Well, there you go. We're going to make sure you leave your contact details as we spread this <laughs> afterward. Now, one question that we get, you know, there's more and more people coming into the orchestration space. We've talked about what it is. There are people like us building platforms to address some of these needs so merchants can sort of just pick it up off the shelf and plug these holes rather than, as you say, hiring thousands of engineers and having data and knowledge bleed in every different direction. Do you think that the new services coming into the orchestration space Do you think it's a winner takes all? What do you see as being ahead now? Because we've got commoditization, we've got fragmentation, we've got orchestration coming around to sort of harmonize this, you know, Amazon for payments type thing. Is it going to be an Amazon situation where there's going to be one guerrilla orchestration platform and then some pretenders?
1: I don't believe so because every merchant in every industry has a slightly different requirements. And therefore, there will be orchestration platforms that are more suited for one industry over another industry. The one thing that I fear, however, is that a number of these platforms are now being acquired by PSPs or companies done becoming PSPs. And so the danger there is that It is an attempt to offer this great functionality, but remain captive within, in allowing the PSP to process that payment. I don't believe that that actually serves the industry very well. I think that an orchestration platform can potentially generate revenue as a standalone and be profitable at the same time while helping the merchant reduce their costs but the idea then will be to find orchestration platforms that can be operated independent of the PSP service and they each should be able to live and stand on its own merits rather than and the job of those companies will be to convince them that orchestration by PSP is a better deal than just one or the two alone but in many cases a merchant probably wants to have a little more flexibility because you do lose flexibility when you go into an integrated suite that gives you the orchestration but also insists on processing your payment.
0: We'd like to believe so. I mean, we've copped a lot of heat for remaining transparent all the way through the journey. But it is a hard position to maintain, I think, as the industry is maturing. But I think increasingly, people are seeing those other metrics, they're seeing the inherent value in orchestration, but it's taking time, I think. So for ourselves and others in the space, I hope they can remain transparent and independent and merchant focused, because that's what it's really about, is about merchant value first. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, let's move on to some of the other things personally that, that fascinate me about your story. I recently read a book called Identity Reboot by a lovely young lady by the name of Arwen on blockchain and self-sovereign identity. And uh, I'm sorry, I had to use those two uh, those two phrases in our podcast. <laughs> 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 there we are, my first one. And I've used the word blockchain. I hope you can forgive me. But you talked about unified identity verification. And I'm seeing a trend where authorization and exchange of value you know, authorization is really the face of payments and what's happening at the back end, whether it's a scheme-based process or faster payments rails or some other ledger technology, those two things are separating a little bit where we're sort of agnostic about what constitutes the exchange value and it's the authentication, the identity at the front, you know, moving to the edge, sometimes we talk about. Was that kind of the heart of some of your thinking? I'm just really interested to understand what was behind that particular patent and technology and how you see that playing out in the future.
1: Well, some people have accused me of being a payments historian, but if you think about, again, the barter days, it was all face-to-face with people you knew. Then payments where cash was exchanged, now people began to look at the bills, are they forged, right? Trying to authenticate and ensure that it was a valid transaction, but it was still a face-to-face with people that you knew. And then as we have evolved checks and so forth, each measurement is moving those two trading partners farther and farther apart, and almost to the point that now, you trade with people not only not face-to-face, but people that you don't even know. And so the question then becomes, how do you ensure that the person is not fraudulent, that he, she is who they say they are, that the payment instrument is actually belongs to them, and that the payment instrument actually is funded, which is what today we call authorization. But look at all the other things that now the industry is trying to prove. And what those particular pat- that particular patent was all about, and we were playing around with this idea back on my PayPal days, 2007, 13 years ago, in looking at the concept of creating, and I was just rereading the abstract of the patent just prior to this call because I needed to refresh my mind, (laughs) as to the concept of tokenizing the identity of the consumer and associating that with a particular merchant and or a particular device. Believe it or not, I think that those are some of the same concepts that stand behind Apple Pay. We were just beginning to scratch the surface in that day and and but that's fundamentally what that came about is since we don't really know who we are with each other, we really need to start thinking about how we are going to identify ourselves because Plastic cars, 16-digit numbers, they were never designed to be used in this manner in a card not present situation. And so those are the challenges that we're finding. But I also have another pattern, which I think is going to be more interesting, because it's the concept of push payments. Pushing, yes. Because I think that with a lot of these new real-time payment mechanisms arising all over the world, including here in the U.S. with RTP and FedNow, the probability is, exists And this goes back to innovation. This goes back to looking at alternative ways of exchanging the value. The possibility exists to flip the flow of the payments so that instead of being a pool, as it is today, where the merchant tries to take money away from a consumer's account, it will be the opposite, where the consumer pushes money into the merchant's account in the same way that you do with a bill pay system. And a number of payment systems around the world are actually evolving where A consumer, using his or her bank application, can scan a QR code presented by the merchant, and that initiates a real-time payment that eventually ends up in a merchant's bank account within seconds. I
0: might follow you up on that one, because I had a very interesting conversation with somebody in the um, Asia-Pacific region connected with a few big banks there on this very topic this morning. So I might loop back around after this call sometime. Uh, I think there might be something we can work on there. But I agree, I see that there's a big change coming in in the ability to push because that creates, I guess, a lot more security and control for the person who's doing the paying, which, you know, I think as a consumer, we like. And for the merchant, it completely eliminates
1: chargebacks. It completely eliminates 3D secure and all of that other alphabet soup of things that merchants have to do today just to try to maintain the current infrastructure afloat. And so this is one of those moments where you almost have to rethink how we go about exchanging value. And the payments is not just about putting a card through the system. Payments, says, at the end of the day, is how do we exchange that value? And I think that's going to be the interesting thing that will be happening in the near future. And I'm going to go back and look at
0: my patents and see if there is anything in
1: there. The, the patents actually do belong to eBay when I was with <laughs> PayPal.
0: <so. laughs> Maybe not too much you can leverage, but uh, actually you said the word payments historian, but as you were talking, I was thinking about back in the day when we all had cash, if we would actually give the cash to someone, we would push the note across the counter. Right, exactly. And so we are kind of going back there while going forward. But guess what that is going to do to a merchant?
1: They have to change their payments interface. Because now, instead of sending a request that says, okay, please authorize and waiting for a response, now the merchant basically has to... Say to the billing system or the order entry system or whichever that is accepting this payment, has to tell the payments platform, hey, we just sent a request to pay. Go check or interface with the bank and see if the money has come in or to whoever processor to see if the money has come in so that we can dispatch the goods, right? And so most merchants kind of go, I don't know how to do that, or how many engineering years it's gonna take to do that. And so we got into this bit of vicious circle that we cannot take advantage of new technologies and new services and new less expensive methods of payment without making the investment, but you have to make the investment to reap that particular benefit. Unless there is something that is already designed from the get-go to be flexible and to support, not only pull, but push,
0: Inbound payouts in all different kinds of payment mechanisms. It's kind of like not just the most agile wins, but it's it who'll be able to move the fastest, like a cheetah running. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> I indeed. mean, we've had some of our customers say, "Well, we've been able to do it with you in a few months what we weren't able to do in nine months, and now that you're in, we can go bang, 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 and just unblock our payments roadmap." So we are seeing that supercharging effect through orchestration, which I think. I think holds many of the answers, whether it's done in-house or if you can afford it or through a platform that's focused on your industry. I've got kind of two or three final things that I really wanted to touch on. And this is something that I think is quite important and it comes up for me a lot. We don't work in, you know, particular sectors We're seeking to become, in time, a B corporation as fast as we can and focus on a payments company that has values as well. And we see a lot of people making hiring choices around values. The payments industry is not really known for being an industry that operates to a higher standard. Do you feel, I mean, it's a little bit of an abstract question, but... What do you see as the role of values in, I guess, payments companies in our sector? Like you're saying, we're all you end up people you end up trading with, you become friends with, you know, here in the payments industry, we all kind of know each other. I think personally I have a responsibility to speak to the role of values in payments companies, which I think is really interesting and maybe something that hasn't been thought about before. Is it something that you've thought about or encountered or have a position on? No particular answer I'm searching for here. It's, it's
1: <laughs> No, no, indeed. It's a fragmented answer that I'm going to give you. Primarily here in the United States where I am based, we have this environment where 65, 70, nearly 70% of all non-cash payments are done on cars. These cars are subject to interchange. We find interchange to be a very regressive method and very non-transparent method of rewarding the participating parties, in that in many cases, consumers are making decisions that go against their own good, because they're just trying to get their frequent flyer cars and, and their frequent flyer miles and frequent guest points, right? And as the Australians demonstrated back in 2003, all of those benefits and perks usually go to the upper levels of society. In that the non-affluent people are still paying the tax associated with interchange, even though very few of them are getting benefit, benefit associated yeah. with that. So in many countries, there are a number of countries where there is no interchange. Canada, for example, has this uh, no interchange schema called Interact. Now, the consumer pays his bank for the benefit of doing a transaction, and the merchant pays his bank for the benefit of doing that transaction. But there is no portion of that transaction value that goes from the merchant back to the issuer. And so the question then becomes, is Interchange a valid model, which is going to sound like I am speaking at two sides of my mouth here. It's a valid model. It's just as good as any other. The question is, is it being abused in some places? Now, in Australia and over in Europe, the regulators have actually mandated CAPS, and even though despite the claims from the car schemas that the world will come to an end, things just keep on moving right along. Thank you very much. The question then to me becomes from a social perspective is there is a cost associated with processing a payment. Nobody denies that. Companies that are offering the service should be making a profit. Nobody denies that. But who defines what that cost is and who defines what the social cost and the social implication associated with that should be? Because in some cases, we have those kinds of rather unfair environments. And we're seeing that here in the United States, primarily under these COVID days, because a lot of the very small merchants, minority business and the like, who have always been transacting at cash or in a face-to-face environment now are having to accept a lot of orders in a card-not-present environment and are being exposed to fraud, friendly fraud, increased charges, and there are expected even increases on this particular segment of the industry on interchange. So those are the things that trouble us, and that we have a voice, and we want to see we want to see our voice amplified for people to start thinking about. Who should be setting that? How do we go about creating a good, proper payments policy? Because the way in which we do it here is primarily large merchants suing large issuers in the card schemas, and they have lawsuits that go on for decades. Millions of dollars are spent, but neither the value, neither the benefit to the consumer nor to the small merchant is actually taken into account because nobody is representing them. So we would kind of like to have a little louder voice in that particular space, because as I said, it is an important part. Without it, payments is the grease that makes the machine operate, right? Some people may argue, well, the machine could do without all of the above, but there needs to be a sense of fairness associated with it. And that's kind of the little little square in this little sub box where we like to stand every so often.
0: And so merchants just wondering, maybe I don't know how to navigate my way through this. That's where you come in. That's why you're doing what you're doing now, RPGC, is to help merchants understand what you understand so that they can benefit without... I guess, falling prey to a system that they might otherwise become exposed to?
1: Well, it is sadly very unlikely that there will be, I mean, we had Durbin Amendment here in the United States, which hopefully your audience is familiar with, where debit interchange was capped only for a segment of all the debit cards here in the country. But besides that, there has never been nor there is likely to be much governmental intervention in cap fairs. I hope I am wrong and that that indeed changes as you have done it over in Europe, in Australia, and a number of other countries. So yes, one of the things that we learn, however, is that the best way, and this goes back to the orchestration discussion, that the best way to influence the industry is by creating competition by bringing new methods of payments, by bringing lower and less expensive methods of payments that consumers want to use. And we were just talking about push, for example, as an example of that. And so how do merchants then begin to move in that general direction and architecturally support these new ideas and new concepts without having to hire armies of engineers. That's where it all connects together.
0: Having the competitive vendors there and having them accessible or easily consumed in a way that you can digest them as part of your strategy, those two halves have to meet. And I think we spend a lot of time looking at this great new B2C thing that everyone's excited about. But the other half side of that coin is yes, but how's the merchant going to <laughs> take advantage of it? That's I think that's the bit we're both passionate about. Okay, I, I'm sensitive to the time here. Yeah, again, I could do this all day. You know, We might have to do this every quarter just to check in. But two things, two speculations here. Two years, what do you think the payment industry is going to look like? Maybe you can speak from your experience in the US. and And where do you think even in 10 years, if you just had to speculate, have a moonshot, maybe in 10 years we'll revisit our our speculations and see if we were right. (laughs) Sure. Well, in two years I think it's going to the path of convergence is, is getting bigger,
1: accelerated by COVID. Pretty soon, there will not be that big a difference between a car present and car not present. Even the car schemas are really moving us in that direction with wallets such as Apple Wallet, Google Wallets and the like, and all of these different tokenization schemas that are taking place and moving that level of technology as well into the e-commerce and mobile commerce space. So I think that that's gonna be a convergence to the point that people will not be thinking about. And we've been talking about this for a number of years. We haven't really seen the uh, full fruition of it, where you can order online, go to the store and pick it up, and return it by mail or to another store. So we're going to see more and more and more of that stuff happening. Hopefully, we'll also see some early pilots on push payment, push-oriented payments, as these are the standard nowadays in Southeast Asia, as you were mentioning earlier on. Now, 10 years from now, open banking, that will be what I believe is, is when there will be few intermediaries that will allow merchants that are, again, technically savvy to be able to leverage open banking technologies to be able to bypass the CARE schemas, to be able to bypass the clearing and settlement mechanisms that, and be able to bring an even faster resolution and being able to also gather sufficient data that will allow them to serve their consumers a little better. So that's kind of where I see all of those things. Unfortunately, or rather, the increasingly entry of the larger card schemas into open banking begins to create a bit of a challenge to the fulfillment of that idea because they themselves can position. And there is nothing wrong with that, just like there is nothing wrong with them doing the role that they do today. The question then becomes about it's a matter of financial reach, it's a matter of inclusivity, it's a matter of fairness in terms of pricing as well. Yeah,
0: and I'd love to see, I'd love to see um, financial inclusion be such a big theme for the next 10 years as well, particularly for the unbanked. And I, I even read in, that in New York, I think 20% of people are still unbanked. And there's got to be ways that we can help solve some of those problems too. Indeed, and at a reasonable cost, because a lot of these unbanked people
1: nowadays are buying prepaid cars and paying exorbitant fees
0: just to be able to participate in the economy. Yeah. And they're not the wealthy ones at the top. They're paying a tax for that. To share. Come on, let's change that. Look, this has been lovely. Thank you so much. It's just a delight, a pleasure and an honor. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, thank you. If somebody wants to find out more about RPGC, what you guys do, just go to the website. Yeah, just go to our website, www.rpgc.com. Awesome. Thank you. And look, we'll link to it when we publish this as well. And hopefully it's very interesting and hopefully informative for some of those who listen and those in our networks. And we're here on the bleeding edge just trying to push the needle for people. And, you know, I think there is so much money trapped in the system. You know, that's what really gets me out of bed. There's so much value there. If you could just reach out and grab it and so hopefully we can help people do that
1: yeah there is especially and that's really one of the driving forces behind this real-time payments idea as to how much money there is in float through this batch oriented overnight bank transfers and so the need is now to get money movement why would you mail a letter when you could do email or more importantly why would you even email when you have a channel like a slack that allows you to instantly communicate That's the world we're moving to.
0: Yeah, look, we're going to drag him kicking and screaming. We'll get there. Thank you, Renee. I really appreciate your time. It's so valuable. Lovely. Thank you. My pleasure indeed. Thanks for tuning in. Please like, subscribe and share if you found this helpful. And let me know if we can look at a particular topic. We're always open to new ideas and new ways to increase innovations in payments. You can find both myself and PayDoc on LinkedIn, Twitter and all the usual places. Bye for now. Oh, 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 oh,